Pujari said, accepting, respecting, and valuing the differences in others is a great ethical choice, which is possible for every modern person. Differences are not a problem that we annul or eliminate. They are a resource and an opportunity. This is Sandy Lanes. My guest today connects her longtime study of the Reggio approach with her expertise in anti-bias education. She inspires us to infuse a stance about diversity and equity into everything we do. Join us as she describes how listening to children and creating a culture of empathy are central to this work, and as she helps us become Awakened to Reggio. Debbie Lee Keenan is a lecturer, consultant, and author. She's the former director of the Elliott Pearson Children's School at Tufts University and has been a member of the early childhood faculty at Tufts University, Lesley University, and the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. She consults and lectures locally, nationally, and internationally. Debbie is a co-producer of the film Reflecting on Anti-Bias Education in Action, The Early Years. Her recent co-authored books include From Survive to Thrive, A Director's Guide for Leading an Early Childhood Program, and Leading Anti-Bias Early Childhood Programs, A Guide for Change. She co-authored a chapter in the first edition of The Hundred Languages of Children and has written for numerous journals, including Young Children and Exchange. Debbie is Chinese-American, the child of first-generation immigrant working-class parents who grew up in New York City and is part of a multiracial family. Welcome, Debbie. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I really want to hear more about who you are and what's most important to you in your work and since our podcast is called Awaken to Reggio, how about we start by hearing about your journey with the Reggio approach? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is it is very special when I think about the Reggio approach because my first introduction was in the 1980s when I was working at the Human Development Lab School at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. I met Carolyn Edwards and George Foreman, who eventually became good friends, not as well as good colleagues. And we were part of the team that brought the first exhibit of the Hundred Languages of Children to the United States. And that was in, I think, in 1988. And I remember what I think about is sitting around Carolyn's uh, in her living room in their dining room table, sitting around with Loris Malaguzzi, Leila Gandini, you know, drinking wine and just chatting. As, and, you know, um, I was much younger then, but I knew there was something, this was significant. This was really special to be in the presence of, um, of Loris Malaguzzi. It, it was pretty amazing how he spoke, even, even I, I just remember that. And then, you know, I continued to obviously be really uh, good friends, particularly with Carolyn for over 30 years. She just recently passed, but um, she and I co-authored articles, presentations, and I had the opportunity actually with Carolyn to in recent, I mean, in the last decade to bring the Reggio approach to China. 
she invited me to come with her. Um, and that was really a powerful, wonderful experience uh, to work with her and doing that in China. So the other thing is, of course, I met um, John Nimmo was also at UMass at the same time during this period of time a little. Um, and so he and I also, that's when we first met and also a longtime colleague and friend. And of course, our focus on anti-bias education. We were thinking about that way back then and with uh, Louise Derman Sparks and thinking about how does that connect uh, with the work we were learning about with ratio too. So. Yeah, even looking back 30 years ago at the 100 Languages of Children in the chapter that you wrote, you all were already speaking about anti-bias. I'm, I'm just wondering, looking back 30 years, you know, this was in 1993, like what are, no, I'm sure you, you would say you've learned a thousand things, but what's something that maybe if you were writing a chapter now in this book, what would be different about it? I'm thinking about, you know, that how, Reggio inspired work, the approach and how anti-bias work is really integrated. And you use some, we use some of the basic ideas of listening to children, hearing their comments and questions, um, thinking about how to respond thoughtfully, how to set up provocations uh, to have them think more deeply and in anti-bias work about differences, how we're the same, how we're different, what's fair and unfair. Um, it's also about embracing working with families and the idea of disequilibrium, right? That we learn more when we fall down, that we get up. You know, I think that's part of both approaches when I think about that, that uh, we don't wanna be afraid of disequilibrium or feel afraid of discomfort because that's when we all grow. And I think we know that intuitively, or we know that from, uh, from the research, right? With Piaget and everyone that, you know, kids learn when, they, when, they, when there's disequilibrium. I think for us as adults, it's harder for us to embrace that all the time, but I believe that's a key part of doing anti-bias work also, of feeling comfortable leaning into discomfort and mm -hmm. conflict. That is such an important disposition for all of us to be thinking about. Maybe could you talk a little bit about what it could look like in a Reggio-inspired classroom to think about anti-bias work? And maybe I actually jumped forward because maybe tell us about anti-bias work and, and what does that even mean for those of us who are new to it? Yeah, so... When I think about anti-bias education, first of all, it's not just a curriculum or an activity or a program. It's a lens, it's a perspective, it's a part of everything you do. So it's how you interact with, uh, what you set up in your classroom, it's the materials you choose, it's how you interact with children, um, it's how you interact with families and colleagues, and it's part of your mission, it's part of your policies and procedure. So it's, infusing a stance about a diversity and equity into everything you do. So that's the first kind of, some people think, oh, I just did the anti-bias activity. Check, I'm done. Check no, it off. Yeah. It's more than that, right? So it's an approach. Um, I think then there are the, the four goals of anti-bias education, which when someone asks me, well, how do I get started with this? Or what is it? I say, think, let's unpack those four goals and maybe even put them up on your wall so you're always thinking about them. So these four goals about identity, diversity, justice, and action are, first of all, they're for children and adults. They build on each other. 
Um, they're interrelated. You can't really separate them. Um, but to go a little bit more what it what it means. So identity, the first goal is about feeling um, feeling confident in who you are or if you're working about children, having children and families feel confident about who they are and their positive social identities, feeling comfortable in their own skin. The second goal is about diversity, and that's really embracing differences, feeling comfortable with people who are different from you, having language to describe differences, um, and to develop that empathy, uh, interaction, empathic interactions with others. And the third goal is about justice. Now, what does that mean with young children? We're talking about early childhood. That's really about unfairness, right? What's fair, what's unfair, and having words to describe unfairness and what that means and what it looks like. Children are very connected to justice. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, And the fourth goal is about action, um, right? And what does that mean with young children? I like to use the term empowerment. So it's having the skills to act when you see things that are unfair. And that could be empowerment about for yourself, speaking up for yourself, or speaking up for others. So yes, you when you see things um, that are unfair in the world, people talk about, oh, we're going to do a protest, and we can engage children in activism like that group activism. But I also see it, particularly in early childhood, also about learning, having kids learn to speak up for themselves or noticing, developing that empathy, even with infant and toddlers, right? I think about, you know, when a a toddler's, uh, someone's crying, a baby's crying, another toddler brings over their lobby to them. That's a kind of, you know, activism, right? They're seeing, they're feeling how this child is feeling and they're bringing something to make them feel better. That could, a little bit to me, what goal four can also look like, even with babies. So when people say, oh, you know, there are a lot of misconceptions about these goals too, that they're too young or children aren't aware of this, where it's the adult thing. But we know that the research tells us that even babies, very young children are aware of differences and they ask questions about this. And the research tells us that even at six months of age, when children see someone, uh, children prefer uh, same color faces at six months of age. So when children notice these things and ask questions, you know, it's really important for us to pay attention and not ignore those comments and questions. Cause sometimes we do that because we're not sure what to do, but when we do that, we're still giving a message, right? If we ignore it or go, shh, or we don't talk about that. It's giving the message that there's something wrong with that difference or something wrong with that question. All of these goals are really, when I think about them, it's what the Reggio approach was built upon and and why it became an approach was just completely rooted in these. And so I'm I'm thinking about, and as you just described an infant uh, sort of thinking in these ways and, and the research around that, I think that really, tells us a lot as educators that we can't ignore, we can't keep thinking that children aren't aware of this. And so what would it look like if I were to walk into a classroom where where the the goals of anti-bias were visible? 
We get that question all the time. And that's one of the reasons I want to share this film that I was a part of, helped create a couple of years ago. We are reflecting on anti-bias education in action the early years. Uh, we released it in 2021. It's available for free. It's available from our website, antibiasleadersece.com. It's excellent. I watched it a couple of years ago and I watched it again in preparation. It's amazing. So that's one of the, I mean, one of the reasons we created that is just because people just ask me that question all the time. You know, we have great books where you can go to workshops, you can read articles, you can look at photographs, but most people still say, well, what does it look like? What this film is, if you haven't seen it, it's really has vignettes of classrooms. And then it's teachers reflecting on those experiences. And we've organized it around those four goals of identity, diversity, justice, and action. I will also say, though, that the film is a provocation, that wonderful word <laughs> I've learned from, from Reggio Amelia, actually, right? That it's not meant to copy what you see in that film because those teachers are working in their context. So understanding your context is a big part of us doing anti-bias work too. Who are your children and families? What do you, what, what, what's going to be relevant and meaningful to them? What are their questions about differences and similarities? The film is a way to think about what's possible, but then you think about, well, what does this mean in my own setting? So that's a first piece I think about. The other idea is this idea, and if you think about those four goals, it's also about mirrors and windows, and people may have heard that phrase before. So mirrors means you want to reflect your classroom environments, the experiences, the materials, the books you have to reflect the children and families you're serving. And you wanna provide windows. So windows are like looking out, have those, have your children have opportunities to see and experience people who are different from them. So you, when I think about an um, anti-bias program, that's what we hope to see that uh, who, you know, the teachers, the directors are thinking about what can I, how, what's relevant to my children, what will provide mirrors and what will provide windows. So that's some of the things that I first think about. And of course, it, it also involves partnering closely with families. You can't do anti-bias work without engaging families, right? Because as we know, and again, I think it's a parallel with Reggio, right? Children don't come to school as empty slates. Mm. They're coming with that idea of funds of knowledge, right? We learn from and with families. And so we want to bring them in. We want to learn from them. They're there. They're right. The children's first teachers. Again, one of our uh, Reggio um, uh, guides of light for us, that, that idea of them being their first teachers, it follows through. So what, what are they coming to school with? How can I partner with them? How can I learn from these families? And to be open to how they respond, that not all families are going to participate and engage in a family in the same way. So I think that's important, too. Yeah. Um, an anti-bias approach has both a short-term and long-term approach, right? So the short-term is how do you respond in the immediate comment or question or incident that happens? And long-term is how do I extend that? So to me, the best curriculum anti-bias experiences are based on the questions that the children ask. Just thinking if we tune in, we will hear those kinds of questions and comments constantly. And sometimes we're so focused on other agendas that we miss the most 
key moments that really will bring children to all kinds of dialogue. I, I always think about um, Vivian Paley, yes. who said, you know, if you want children to have dialogue, I'm, I'm misquoting her, but I, but it's in essence, this talk about fantasy, friendship and fairness, and, and they will have so much to say. And, and this is really so connected. For sure. It's all about different perspectives and understanding that. Sometimes it seems like classrooms, they're often classrooms that send a message that difference, not even related to culture, skin color, all of those things, but just even sharing an idea that differences are not what we're looking for. And so this really is is encompassing of everything, every interaction. It's just how we live every single day. And I'm thinking about an entry point for teachers who, who want to step into this, as we should. What should they be thinking about in their own dispositions and their own sense of self that would help them impact their teaching in this way? Right. It's such an important question and important work. We always like to say we carry our ghosts on our shoulders. And for me, what that means is our previous experiences, how we grew up, how we learned about difference, the messages we received about difference from our families, from our friends, from the media, from our schools, from our teachers, impacts. We may not even be aware of it. So taking time to unpack those experiences. And how, how do you do that? Um, reflecting, journaling, uh, using articles, using videos. There's so much out there now, particularly recently, that are good starting points from a short article in uh, one of our early childhood journals, like Young Children or Exchange, the video, you know, taking a little video clip and looking at it, uh, reading the anti-bias book for um for your for our set for children and ourselves by Louise Derman Sparks and Julie Edwards the the Julie Olson Edwards the latest book from NAYC I think they they have so many prompts in there and they talk about you know the work that adults need to do and then of course there are a lot of you know adult books out there how to be an anti-racist by Kendi white fragility by Robin D'Angelo I mean they're just you can look on any list. There are tons of books out there. And I think any of these also are good to use as a book group, you know, to start that kind of work. But I think it's just, you know, even just having a conversation, you could use a book as a provocation or a video, but you can also just have a, a meeting uh, at, at your, in your program, at your early childhood program, a faculty meeting, a staff meeting or with a buddy and you just ask each other, you know, when did you first learn about? What was your first question about difference? What's your earliest memory of noticing someone who's different from you? And it doesn't matter what your ethnicity or race is, or but we all have experienced some kind of difference, whether you're part of a majority or part of a marginalized group. And in all our social identities, I always say it's important not just to think about race and ethnicity, you know, language, ability, family structure, uh, gender, you know, there's so many uh, class, you know, socioeconomic status, all of these are different ways to think about our social identities. And we probably feel have different experiences in each of them. So to think about how we first learned about that, and then to think about 
well, how does that impact what I do today? No matter what my role is, whether I'm a classroom teacher, whether I'm a director, whether I'm a coach, whether I'm a parent or grandparent, how does this impact what I'm doing right now in my daily life? So I think just taking that time to pause and reflect and to think about how did we first learn about differences ourselves? And I think that helps you have a new lens to it, or I hope it does. Yeah, that's such a beautiful question that I doubt a lot of people are, have asked themselves. And I think that's so interesting. This, this idea of disequilibrium that you spoke about before is something that besides being such a, a, a strong value in the Reggio approach, it is something that we all need to embrace in order to take steps forward in any way. And there's always fear. I mean, I know for myself, and I think most of us are, are wondering, are we saying the right thing? Are we doing the right thing? Yeah. And that we have to feel comfortable. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to say, I'm not sure. And that's even more powerful when we say that to children, right? As a teacher or as a parent, right? It's so you want your kids to see you you can make a mistake. You can learn from that. So often when teachers ask me, yeah, when those kinds of questions are, you know, why does my skin this color? Or why, why does he talk funny? Or, you know, why does she have two mommies? Where's her daddy? You know, or um, when kids ask these questions, you know, people often aren't sure what to say. So they'd rather not say anything. And I think to, you know, you could, first of all, you could say, you know, that's a good question. What do you think you can give you by yourself some time or, you know, or why is that person sleeping on the street? You know, you're not sure what you want to say right then you can say, you know, just kind of talk to the child, listen to what they're saying, and then say, you know, I want to think more about this and we'll talk about it more later. The key thing is make sure you talk about it later, don't, but, but it gives yourself some time. And it's almost more powerful than just answering, really. Yeah. Yes. And it's even more, you could say something even, and then come back the next day and say, you know, I thought more of that. And I actually have a different idea on that now. Let's, you know, again, that's the message that we are right. Lifelong learners that we can keep on learning, but you're right. I think that many people, we, we often feel comfortable for giving grace to children, right. And feel it's okay for kids to make mistakes. We know, we know all about that, but we don't do that for ourselves. And I think we can't, if we don't, aren't willing to take risks, then we're not going to be able to continue to grow and develop as, as a person, as a society, as a community. And so that's a, such a key part of, of this work. I feel like that's really helpful for all of us to hear. I, I, I think the grace piece is so important. So one of the areas that you focus on a lot and that I've done a lot of reading of yours in is early childhood leadership. And so as we come to an end, I hate to do that, but as we come to an end, can you give us a call to action? Really, what message or messages would you like to send to early childhood leaders about this sacred work that they do, about what it is to live and do this in, in, in the fullest way? First of all, that early childhood leaders means all of us. All of us can be a leader. We can aspire to be a leader. We can, some of us have that 
leadership role in our title and in our responsibilities about running a program and organization. Some of us can be a leader in our class, our leaders in our classrooms. Some of us are parent leaders. So first of all, I think this can mean anyone who aspires to be a leader. And so that's the first piece. The second piece is to be intentional, to be strategic, to be aware of the vision and what your goal is, but also at the same time where you're dealing with the short-term necessity. So that's what leaders do. We think of the big picture and we're thinking about the small picture at the same time. And I think the most important thing, which I have mentioned though, is this idea I usually like to talk about is we're living during a very contentious times. It's challenging for so many reasons. And I think it's often we can, you know, feel hope, not, not have as much hope, feel hopeless. It's such, there's so much divisiveness, you know, how there's so much pushback, so much opposition and you feel discouraged. So for me, it's about realizing, embracing the moments I'm in to think about, this is a long-term work. It's not short-term. It's happened way before. There have been issues of injustice before. It's going to continue in the future. I don't believe anymore that there's going to be a real revolution. This will kindly disappear and that this is the work. So I embrace it. I think about uh, a Chinese saying I'll end with is this idea called man, ma, man, man lai, which literally means slowly, slowly it will come. Man, man lai. That if we just take one step in front of the other and keep on walking, that change happens and we'll find that hope we're looking for. So we have to take it slow, but just keep walking. Don't give up. Oh, wow. That is just so beautiful and, and really inspiring. You, you have already done so much to impact our field, to change thinking along the way. And you've given us so much today to chew on and really, I think, heightened all of our awareness around anti-bias, around listening to children, and, and also really getting to know ourselves and our own biases. And You've inspired me in so many ways. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me um, to have this conversation. And I want to just a shout out to everyone who's doing this work every day. Um, when we work together, we can make change. Thank you so much. Thank you. like to learn more about my guests or the Reggio approach, please go to my website at sandylanesconsulting.com.